right, Bell, our church family. We are in a sermon series called Bonfire with the Sages. And if you haven't been with us for any of these sermons, a reminder that this invitation that God has given us as we go to God's word is an opportunity for us to see our lives from God's point of view through the lens of these sages, these amazing heroes of the faith. Now, as I did last week, uh, I wore a, a, you know, a different outfit than I normally wear for those of you that have been with us uh, perhaps for many years. In fact, as I shared last week, that this, this shirt of mine uh, hasn't always been mine because previously it was my grandfather's. Uh, this shirt is older than I am, one of my most treasured uh, articles of clothing. It's a, it's a Pendleton. I think it's about like 50 years old or so. And as a kid, I remember my grandfather wearing it, him giving it to me. And I, I often wear this when I go either camping or I go and I sit at a friend's house, perhaps, around a bonfire. This is my bonfire shirt. And in addition to it being something that reminds me of the wisdom of my grandfather, it also reminds me of the memories that I've made personally sitting around bonfires, whether that's, again, uh, invited over to a friend's home and we sit around a bonfire. Maybe I wear it camping uh, and in, late at night with my family or, or friends and their families, we sit around the bonfire. Or I've had experiences where I've traveled around the world on uh, global service teams, on mission trips. I've been around bonfires in Costa Rica, in the jungle with the, the Bribri indigenous people. I've, I've been around bonfires in Brazil on mission trips. I've been around bonfires in Kenya and Uganda, uh, in Northern Ireland, even up in Alaska on vacation. And I think about these moments, these bonfire moments and how bonfires just, the experience of a bonfire is altogether different than, you know, sitting in a classroom. Being around a bonfire is so different than a video conference call. Being around a bonfire is so different even than sitting around a family room. There's something about a bonfire for me that is very intimate. It's very relational. It's very casual. It seems like around a bonfire, I've experienced more than any other environment the, the feeling of forgetting time. As those logs begin to burn down and turn into glowing red coals, as we layer more wood on top of the fire to, to stoke the fire, to keep it going, the minutes turn into hours and conversations get deeper and deeper. I have a mentor who often says to me that it's in the second hour of a conversation that things get real. It's so true. You know, in the first hour when we're with people, we, we kind of stay on the surface. We catch up. How are you? I'm good. How are you? You know, we, we keep things light. And it seems like when time elapses, when we allow ourselves to be present with the other, deeper things come up from us and from one another. And we have a deeper connection. And with that image in mind, this sermon series is an invitation for you to prayerfully, using your imagination, and again, guided by the Holy Spirit, we pray, that we would imagine what it would be like to sit down around a bonfire, not checking our watch, not rushing off to the next thing, not sitting just formally in a classroom, 
Not distant, you know, across the planet through a video conference call, but present with the sages of Scripture, with the heroes of the faith. And as we do so, it's an opportunity to imagine, what would, the, what would that conversation look like? And we don't have to use our imagination, you know, kind of on our own accord, but we can use our imagination guided by Scripture. And my hope is that as we go through this sermon series, that you would actually maybe have a new tool, a new perspective, and how you can approach Scripture differently. Rather than seeing these, you know, amazing heroes of the faith as people just far off, far removed, or in this kind of like untouchable space of, I'll never be like them, that you would see them as human with their strengths and their weaknesses, with their giftings and their failures, that you would see in them aspects of you and you would see aspects of you in them, that you would grow alongside them on this journey, that you would find yourself perhaps opening scripture in the weeks ahead and that you would ask questions prayerfully through the power of the Holy Spirit. And then as you go through their life stories, what is said about them, that you would ask God to give you guidance. Now, in this uh, sermon series, as I said, and I'm just going to have to keep repeating, because this is a, a different format than perhaps many of us are used to, we're going to have to use our imagination as we go to God's Word. We're going to have to allow the Spirit of God to lead us. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray in a moment, and as I come out of that prayer, I want all of us, wherever you are, no matter what time zone you're in, even if it's your first time visiting us, or if you've been part of our church for 65 years, that you would imagine yourself with me, with these sages of Scripture, and we're going to hear from one of them today in our imaginations guided by God's Word. And I'm going to ask them three questions, the same three questions that I asked last week. But as we do so, it's an important reminder that everything we come to needs to be measured against God's Word. And so my hope is that you would listen to this, that you would imagine this with me with your Bibles open. So why don't we pray as we enter in this time together that God would lead us to wherever God would have. Let's pray. Loving God, I thank you that we have this opportunity that you have given us to come to your word. I pray that your spirit, God, would lead us to your truth as you promise in scripture that it will that we would find in this journey a reminder of who you are, of who we are in this life that you invite us into. And God, as we, in our imaginations and with Scripture open, sit down with Joseph. Would we learn from him? Would we draw closer in our relationship to you, Jesus, because of what we might learn today? It's in your mighty and matchless name, Jesus, we pray. We say together, amen. All right, so in your imagination, I want you to, to, to grab a seat. You're not in the back row. You know, you're not looking from the outside in. You're in the front row. Here we are. We're, we're around this bonfire. It is built up perfectly. You feel the warmth. And maybe as you grab your favorite chair and as you sit down, uh, you grab your favorite drink. And as we settle in, all of a sudden we hear there's one person talking. And quickly we discover that this one person is Joseph. Now, if you don't know who Joseph is, um, his father is named Israel. And his father uh, was the son of, of Isaac, 
who was the son of Abraham. And if you caught last week's sermon on Abraham, we, we had a conversation with Abraham. Remember that? And if you missed it, you can go to our YouTube and check that out. But we asked Abraham these questions. And in a moment, I'm going to ask Joseph these questions. But, but Joseph is, is, is launching into the story of his life. And as we hear about Joseph, we're, we're reminded that, that Joseph actually has 11 brothers. In fact, his 11 brothers, 12 sons in total, uh, ultimately become the 12 tribes of Israel. But as he's telling us the story, we're reminded that actually there was a time early in his life when he was 17 years old where his brothers were jealous of him. It seemed like his father, Israel, who formerly his name was Jacob, changed his name to Israel after a huge encounter with God. Uh, it seemed like his father, Israel, preferred him over all the other brothers. And Joseph, as a result, was one in which all the other brothers were jealous. And, he, and we hear Joseph, he's telling these stories. And, you know, there's an aspect to him that as we hear him tell these stories about how he would have these dreams that he would share with his brothers. And these dreams were ones in which he was kind of greater and all of his brothers would bow down to him. No wonder his brothers were jealous of him. But as he goes on to tell the story, he begins to get into some details that maybe some of us are familiar with about how his brothers plot to kill him, how his brothers capture him, how they take him out in the wilderness how they say, let's kill him and throw him into the pit and how there's this argument and how, as Joseph is recalling the story, one of his brothers, Reuben, talks the other brothers out of it. Reuben, his brother, says, no, 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 don't, don't kill him and throw him in the pit. Let's just, let's just throw him into the pit. We, we, we can't have blood on our hands. And so the brothers Listen, it's not their preference. They want to kill their brother. Instead, they throw him into the pit without food, without water. And you're hearing Joseph tell the story of what he was thinking about in the pit, how he was praying to God in the pit, and how it seemed like God wasn't answering him in the pit. And yet, then his brothers returned. And as we're around this bonfire, hearing Joseph recall this story, he shares that he thought that his brothers had a second thought, a second chance to, to bring him back, to, to say they're sorry, that it was an answer to God's prayer. But in actual fact, Joseph shares with us that that's not what was happening. Apparently, his brothers had gone off. They had a conversation saying, basically, why would we leave him in the pit when we can make money off of him? So here they come back, they, they pull him out out of the pit, and they don't bring him back home. They sell him to some Ishmaelites for 20 pieces of silver. And we hear Joseph telling his life story and his, his crying out to God, his, his longing for God to rescue him, seems like he's falling on deaf ears. And the time goes on, as he's telling his story, he tells the story about how an officer of Pharaoh by the name of Potiphar purchases him from the Ishmaelites. He tells us how he is then brought into Potiphar's house. Joseph tells us how, as he is faithful to God, how he was trusting in God, that he found favor in the sight of Potiphar because the Lord was blessing him. 
Joseph goes on to tell us the story of how Potiphar enables him and empowers him to be kind of like the manager of the household. And Joseph goes on to say that he has been entrusted by God to oversee this and he wants to be faithful in it. And when Potiphar's wife tries to trick him to be intimate with him, that he rejected that, wanting to be faithful to God. And how in the midst of all of that, as he continued to stay faithful to God, Potiphar finally tricked him enough and it caused Joseph to be thrown in jail. And we're hearing Joseph tell this story and much like when he was thrown into the pit, left for dead, crying out to God and God is silent, he is now thrown into the prison, crying out to God and it seems like God is silent. And we hear Joseph and there's this theme that keeps coming back in Joseph's life as we hear him tell his story that regardless of the circumstances that he's in, he chooses to trust God. He chooses to pray to God. And in the midst of the circumstances not going his way, we hear Joseph say, in the midst of God seemingly not answering his prayers, we hear Joseph say, Joseph just keeps trusting. Joseph goes on to share how over time eventually he is given favor because of his faithfulness to God and how the, the prison guards actually empower him to oversee some of the other prisoners. And there's this constant theme we hear Joseph saying that he, despite the circumstances, is faithful to God. God blesses him. He then finds favor in the sight of those around and then he is entrusted to provide oversight. And because when he's faithful in a little, he has been given more to be faithful in, it's just more opportunity to trust God and to be faithful to God. And then we hear Joseph say that there are then two prisoners, and this is where the story gets really weird. Two prisoners thrown into jail. One of them was the cup bearer to the king and the other was the head baker to the king. In other words, the Pharaoh of Egypt. And Joseph is telling this story about how each of these prisoners have a dream. And somehow in the midst of that, God gives Joseph the ability to interpret each of those dreams. And you hear Joseph share that basically the long story short is that the cupbearer's dream is that the Pharaoh would forgive him, reinstate him to his position. But the head baker, Pharaoh, wouldn't forgive him and his life would be taken from him. And so Joseph in jail, been given wisdom by God, we hear him say, shares each of these interpretations to these two dreams. And Joseph says, and I'll never forget this, Joseph says, I said to the cupbearer, when Pharaoh reinstates you, remember me. Don't forget me here in jail. I've been in here so long, don't, 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 don't forget me. And Joseph goes on to say the feeling that he had when the days turned into weeks and the weeks turned into months and the months turned into a year and the year turned into two years and there was silence. And it seemed like the cup bearer had forgotten about him. 
And we're around this bonfire listening to Joseph and we hear these themes again and again and again and again of Joseph seemingly left for dead. Joseph crying out to God for rescue and yet trusting him in the midst of the circumstances. From the pit to Potiphar's house, from Potiphar's house into the jail, from the jail to being in the jail for two years. We hear Joseph share his emotions, his honesty, his rawness. Maybe his moments of doubt, yet coming back to the faithfulness of God. We hear Joseph telling us the story of how his great-grandfather Abraham told his son Isaac, who told his son Jacob, whose name became Israel, who told him, Joseph, that God was going to bless Abraham's descendants. And through Abraham's descendants, there would be a mighty nation. And through that mighty nation and that heritage of people, that the world would be blessed. And here Joseph is in jail, not knowing if his other 11 brothers are still alive, crying out to God, wondering. And we hear this story that Joseph just, just keeps sharing. And then Joseph shares with us the day when he is called for and he's brought before Pharaoh. And this is after two years in jail and we hear Joseph say that he quickly discovers that the Pharaoh now is having dreams. And the Pharaoh had shared with all of his attendants about those dreams and then that finally is the moment in which the cupbearer two years later remembers, oh, I know a guy. I know a guy who rightly interpreted my dreams. He's in jail. His name is Joseph. Two years. <laughs> He's now before Pharaoh. Pharaoh tells him this dream, we hear Joseph say. A weird dream of fat cows and then skinny cows and then the skinny cows eating the fat cows and then another dream of Stalks of grain and of corn, huge, fat ones, and then skinny ones, and then the skinny ones eating the fat ones. And then Pharaoh is telling Joseph, we hear this story, and Joseph says, I can, I can help. And Pharaoh says to him, can you interpret my dreams? And he says, no, 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 not I. It is the Lord, the Lord alone. And we hear Joseph telling everyone around this bonfire this story of the interpretation of those dreams. And he says, basically, what God is telling me is that there is going to be seven years of plenty in the land of Egypt. Things will go well. There will be economic prosperity. Uh, we will have an abundance of food, an abundance of grain. But then it will be followed by seven years of such devastation of a famine unlike we have ever seen, that that famine will devour the memory of the abundance. It will be that bad. And so, you have a choice. And this is what the Lord is calling you to do. Take a portion of all the abundance from the first seven years of plenty and lay it up in storehouses so that when the time of famine comes, not only will Egypt survive, but those nations around Egypt can come and find their hope. And Joseph is telling us the story about how Pharaoh is 
marveling at the fact that he can interpret his dreams. We hear then Joseph telling the story of how in the same way he is then entrusted to oversee Potiphar's house. Now Pharaoh, many, many years later, is now entrusting him to oversee all of Pharaoh's house. In other words, he becomes the prime minister of Egypt. And as we're hearing this story from Joseph, we're we're remembering aspects of this story that perhaps we had forgotten. That now as Joseph is the prime minister over all of Egypt, Pharaoh has put him in the highest place of all. And we hear Joseph saying how remarkable it is to be entrusted in the little things, to then be faithful to God in those things, despite the circumstances, to then be entrusted with more things, to be faithful in those things. And we hear Joseph telling us the stories of what it was like to run the nation of Egypt as a Hebrew man, not even 30 years old. And then we get to the story from Joseph that perhaps many of us are familiar with. As the seven years have gone by, as Pharaoh has put him in charge of all things, as he is laid up in the storehouses, a fifth of all of the abundance of those seven years, the famine begins. And because God had given him the right perspective, the right interpretation of Pharaoh's dreams, they were able to provide for the nation of Egypt. And we hear Joseph tell the story of how because of that provision, word got out to all the surrounding tribes, all the surrounding nations. From their point of view to the ends of the earth, this message got out that, that in Egypt there was rescue. In Egypt there was hope. In Egypt there was enough. And it's at this point that I cut, I cut Joseph off from his storytelling. And I ask him my first of three questions. And I say, Joseph, I mean, this, is, this is remarkable hearing this, this pattern that, that has happened in your life. But my first question that I have for you is this. What did God ask you to take up? And Joseph smiles. And he answers, and he says, the one thing that I believe God was asking me to take up was the ability to extend mercy. And in that moment, we hear Joseph tell us the story of how he first experienced mercy given to him, not by his brothers, but by Reuben. We hear Joseph saying, you know, my brothers understandably wanted me dead, but it was Reuben who withheld that punishment Though the brothers thought I deserved to be dead, he withheld that punishment and extended me mercy. And that shaped me, we hear Joseph share. And in those hours and in those days of being alone in the pit, in the many years later, in the hours and the days and the weeks and the years of being alone in prison, I thanked God for the mercy that Reuben had extended me and it shaped me and it enabled me, we hear Joseph say, to extend mercy to not only my brothers in my mind, but also to extend mercy 
to Potiphar's wife. I mean, she was the reason that I was thrown in jail. It actually enabled me to extend mercy to the cupbearer for forgetting me for two years. By extending mercy, I was able to forgive, we hear Joseph tell the group. And it was because of that mercy that I was able to stay faithful to God, to trust in God, to pray to God, to not get hung up on the wrongs given to me. And even though I was a prisoner in the pit and a prisoner in jail, I wasn't a prisoner in my mind because I had forgiven based on mercy. But it wasn't always easy, we hear Joseph say. And in that moment, he paused. And in that pause, I asked him my second question. I said, Joseph, so if, if God has asked you to, to take up, to pick up mercy and giving mercy away, what did it cost you to lay down? And that's when Joseph began to share something that made me realize just how hard it is to extend mercy. You see, Joseph began to share with all of us around this bonfire that whenever you extend mercy to someone else, whenever you withhold punishment that someone else you believe deserves, you are having to lay down justice, not allowing them to get what they deserve. And in the laying down of that, we hear Joseph say, you actually, you absorb the pain. You absorb the punishment in yourself. And we hear Joseph share how hard it was to extend mercy to his brothers. And the only way he could extend mercy to his brothers in the pit and later on in the memory of that moment was to, to just bear that burden within himself. The only way he could extend mercy to Potiphar's wife was to, to absorb that pain, to absorb that suffering, to take that punishment upon himself. The only way he could extend mercy to the cupbearer is by absorbing that suffering, absorbing that pain, absorbing that punishment to himself. And then we hear Joseph say, but I wasn't always perfect at it. And as he begins to share what happens next, I honestly, I, I forgot this part of the story. You know, as he is about to get into the story, I, I want to share with you that I always imagine uh, the next scene in Joseph's life is one in which his brothers, who they've heard about all the supply in Egypt, they come to Egypt. I, I remember it in my mind's eye from reading scripture many times. I remember it as them coming to Joseph they don't realize that it is Joseph. They just come to Egypt. And I think that immediately there's this, this moment of reconciliation. I immediately think that in that moment, Joseph reveals himself and says what, the famous line, what you intended for harm, God has used for good. I always remember the story that way. But Joseph, as he tells his actual story, the actual narrative of his life recorded in scripture, there's actually a huge gap, a filled-in moment that I've forgotten. Joseph shares that when his brothers come to Egypt and they don't recognize that it's him, they're asking for help. Joseph shares that in that moment, his mercy had run out. 
He had withheld and held on to the pain, the suffering, the punishment, that withholding the punishment that they deserved, extending mercy to them just got too difficult. And what did he do? We hear Joseph say, he wanted justice. And so rather than extending mercy in that moment when his brothers came, he treated them like strangers. He spoke harshly to them. He threw them in jail. He then noticed that one of the brothers was missing. He says, I want you to go back and I want you to bring back the youngest brother. And now there was this experience Joseph is sharing us of when he was unable to extend mercy to them because the pain was too much. In a sense, his ability to forgive had run out. His, his mercy pool had, had drained out and he wanted justice. And he said how hard that was for him. Because in that moment, while he wasn't absorbing the pain, he saw them absorb the pain. And it broke his heart. And Joseph is sharing with us around the bonfire just how hard it is to forgive because you take on pain, but also how hard it is to seek justice because you see, and if it's a loved one, absorb that pain, just how impossible it is. And Joseph continues to tell the story of how a lot of events take place. And finally, his brothers returned with Benjamin, his youngest brother, and how they return with his father, Jacob, also known as Israel. He tells us the story of how there is this experience of them settling in the land and yet him having really a hard time extending mercy. And yet they are given land, they are given food. We hear Joseph tell the story of how his father eventually dies. And then we hear Joseph tell the story of how his brothers, after their father dies, have this thought. What if we go to our brother and what if he makes us pay for all the wrongs that we did to him back then? Joseph is sharing with us, basically they're saying, what if he ultimately wants to seek justice and puts us to death? What are we going to do? And yet they come, Joseph says, and they come and they plead with him. They beg of him. They say, it is our father who asks you to forgive us. And they appeal to his mercy on expense of their father. And it's in that moment that Joseph, we hear tell us in the story, he breaks down. He is so filled with love for his father, so filled with compassion for his father, that he extends mercy to his brothers. And he says in that moment, the famous line that perhaps many of us have heard that we know before, after all these years, he says, what you intended for harm, God has used for good because God wanted to preserve this people to fulfill God's purposes. And it's in that moment that I ask Joseph the third question. Joseph, was it worth it? And in that moment, Joseph smiled. 
And imagine us around the bonfire, not here in 2021, but in the new heavens and the new earth with the fullness of a perspective of all of eternity, of the fulfillment of God's promises. When Joseph answers this question, he says, was it worth it? Remember, God asked me to to take up mercy, to lay down my need for justice. And it was worth it because what happened? And it took many, many years. It took actually many, many decades for me to see the fullness of a picture that the chain reaction, the dominoes that fell because of Reuben extending mercy to me, not killing me, enabled me to go and eventually be in Potiphar's house. That God's favor enabled me, though I was thrown in jail, enabled me to meet prisoners who eventually enabled me to meet Pharaoh, who enabled me to interpret his dreams. None of that would have happened if Reuben hadn't extended mercy to me, nor if I extended mercy to them and enabled me just to be faithful to God. And here I am in this domino effect of a life and now overseeing all of Egypt. And in that being able to store up food that wasn't just for Egypt, it was for all the nations of the world. It was for Israel and his sons. Was it worth it, Joseph says? Had those domino not have fallen? The 11 sons, including me, the 12th son of Israel, we eventually would have died. The Abraham, the Isaac, the Jacob changed his name to Israel and the 12 sons wouldn't have become 12 tribes of Israel. And those 12 tribes wouldn't have had kids and more kids and more kids that eventually led to King David who had more kids and more kids that eventually led to Joseph and Mary who had a son named Jesus who was born, who lived the perfect life, who fulfilled all the prophecies of our Messiah, who after living a perfect life laid down his life. And we hear Joseph say, and as the prophet Isaiah said, that he took upon himself all the iniquities. This Jesus took upon himself all the sins. The prophet Isaiah says that this Jesus took upon himself all the brokenness of all of humanity. And he took it. And we hear Joseph say, was it worth it? Joseph said in that moment, my, my mercy has limits. Your mercy has limits. But Jesus' mercy is limitless. Remember, mercy by definition is withholding punishment that one deserves. The only way that you can withhold punishment on someone else is you, you absorb that. You take that upon yourself. Jesus took all of it upon himself on the cross, Joseph says. And in doing so, demonstrated for us the limitless nature of mercy. Was it worth it? Here's how worth it it was. 
That Jesus who took upon himself all the sins, all the iniquities, all the suffering of all of humanity did what I could not do. Joseph said, my limit of mercy ran out and there was moments where I wanted to take justice into my own hands. And yet this Jesus took upon himself all the sin, all the brokenness, all the punishment that all of us deserve. And he went to the grave. I went to a pit, I went to jail. He went to the grave. And yet three days later, he defeated death, burst forth from the tomb. And here's the remarkable truth. Many years later, the Apostle Paul said this in Romans chapter 3, verse 23. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. But we are all now justified by God's grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a sacrifice of atonement by his blood. He did this to show his righteousness. It was to prove at the present time that he himself is just and that he justifies the one who has faith in Jesus. Was it worth it, Joseph said? He says, I want you to catch this. Humans often think that forgiveness is simply extending mercy. Humans often think that when we ask for forgiveness, we are asking someone to extend mercy mercy to us. The problem is, is that for humans, there are limits to mercy. But Jesus is altogether unique. Jesus is altogether different because his mercy is limitless. Now here's the remarkable truth. Because his mercy is limitless, because he absorbs all of it upon himself, because he does the infinite work that no human could ever do, God looks at those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ as people who have had their debt paid, who have had their punishment taken care of. And so God, as the Apostle Paul says in Romans 3, forgives us not because God is merciful, but because God is just. Remember, justice is giving someone what they deserve. And because Jesus has accomplished all that we can ever do, God looks at us in Christ and says, Jesus has paid it all. It would actually be unjust for God to make you pay for what Jesus has already paid for. And so actually, when we ask God for forgiveness, we're appealing not to his mercy, we're appealing to his justice. Because of the mercy that Jesus has extended to us, taking all of that punishment, all of that suffering, all of that pain upon himself. And rather than trying to imitate Joseph, and just being people that extend mercy, what we can do is we can experience the forgiveness that God gives us through Jesus Christ. And we can then have the ability when people wrong us to extend mercy on others, not out of our well of mercy, not out of our pool of mercy, but out of what Christ has done on our behalf. 
that we forgive others as Christ has forgiven us, knowing that God is a God of justice. And rather than taking justice in our own hands, we can trust God with that thing. Joseph says, was it worth it? These moments of mercy enabled me to point to the merciful one, Jesus Christ, unlocking the fulfillment of God's promise through my great-grandfather, Abraham. It seemed like a slow answer to my prayer, God, rescue me, God, rescue us. And yet God was faithful. And as the conversation continued on, I was, and I hope that we are, marveling at Joseph just walking us through his life, answering these questions of, what did God call you to take up? What did it cost you to lay down? And was it worth it? And as we come out of that bonfire, kind of back into this moment, into our rooms and the imagination uh, of what we just experienced, I want to share with you that this whole journey, this whole narrative actually reminds me of an illustration that was given to me as a college student. I was a brand new believer. And as a brand new believer, I, you know, would make mistakes. As I, a mature believer, still make mistakes. I then, like now, ask God for forgiveness. But this illustration changed everything. And my prayer is that you would be able to hear this illustration through the narrative, the experience that we just had with Joseph. It was actually Oz Guinness, a famous author, who shared this illustration at college briefing up at Forest Home. And he said this, he says, I want you to imagine that I have a friend who's visiting me for a week. And while he's visiting me, as a coffee lover, I recommend a coffee shop just right down the street. I know the owner, and I know he's going to have a great time there. And so daily, he then leaves my home as I go off to work, and he goes to this coffee shop. It's one of those coffee shops where you don't have to pay first. You can order, you know, take it in, and at the end, the bill comes. Well, he goes to the coffee shop. He orders some coffee, orders a muffin. He takes it in, and he enjoys it. And then at the end of it, he goes, oh, oh, oh. I'm so sorry, I forgot my, my cash. I don't have any cards on me. I have no ability to pay for what I've taken. But, but I'm friends with Oz Guinness. You know, you know him. I'm friends with him. Can you forgive my debt today? I, I promise I'll, I'll, I'll pay it tomorrow. And so the coffee shop owner, because he knows me, Oz Guinness shared many years ago, forgives his debt. The next day, he comes again and he says, you got your money? Oh, I got my money. I promise, I promise. The same thing happens though. He orders, he gets a little bit more food at the end of the time. He doesn't have the ability to pay. He asks for forgiveness. He appeals to him based upon his friend. He says, I, I promise I'll pay tomorrow. He forgives him. The third day happens, the same thing. The fourth day happens, the same thing. The fifth day happens, the same thing. The sixth day happens. Finally, on the seventh day, finally, his patience runs out, the coffee shop owner, Oz, says. And he says, forget it. My patience has run out. I've forgiven you week after week, day, or day after day, this whole week. No more. Don't come back again. In that moment, Oz Guinness, in telling this story, says that that person, the friend, is appealing to the shop owner's mercy to forgive. 
Please withhold punishment. Don't send me off to jail. Don't make me go in the back and and wash dishes. Would you withhold the punishment even though I can't pay? But eventually his mercy runs out. Kind of like Joseph. Kind of like us. But then Osgenis goes on and he finishes the illustration. He says, now let me give you a different scenario. What if when my friend comes for the week knowing that he's a coffee lover, knowing that he's going to go to this coffee shop that I recommend, knowing that this friend of mine is always forgetful, knowing that this friend of mine likely is going to forget his cash, forgets his wallet, what I'm going to do in advance is I'm going to go, Os Guinness says, I'm going to go to the coffee shop owner and I'm going to give him my card to my bank account, my debit card. And I'm going to tell him, you're going to have a guest. He's my friend. And likely, he's not going to be able to pay. I want you to charge everything that he takes, everything that he orders onto my card. The balance is there. You know that I'm good for it. That money is not going to run out. He could purchase everything in your shop and then some, and it's not going to run out. I want to pay for it in advance. The same thing happens. Day one, day two, day three, day four, day five, day six. He comes, he orders, he forgets, he asks for forgiveness. But the coffee shop owner forgives him. Not based on his mercy, he's not withholding punishment. He should extend forgiveness to him because he is just. If he's a just coffee shop owner, he would know it's already been paid for. So he has to forgive because I have already paid for it. And therefore, day seven comes along and he forgets. And in the former scenario where he finally says, forget it, I'm not going to forgive anymore. He forgives again and says, I hope you come back soon. Why? Because he's forgiving, not because he's merciful. He's forgiving because he's just. And I'll never forget that college briefing at Forest Home in 2001, he said something that changed my life, Drew Sams's life, the senior pastor of Bel Air Church's life, a follower of Jesus at that time for only a year. It changed my life when he said, that's how God forgives us. Jesus has paid it all. He didn't just put down a card He put down his life. And because there is an infinite supply of the perfection and the holiness of Jesus, that our sin, our mistakes, our wrongdoings, when we fail to do the right thing that God longs for us to do, when we go to God and we ask God for forgiveness, If we've put our faith and trust in Jesus, God looks at us knowing that it's already been paid for and God forgives us. And in that moment, what it unlocked in me wasn't just this frivolousness that cheapened God's grace that I could say, oh, I can do whatever I want now and God's gonna forgive me. No, what it did is it humbled me. It made me realize the the magnitude of what Jesus had done 
It made me realize that when I make mistakes, I don't have to hide it from God, but I can run to him and I can ask for forgiveness. And as it says in the book of Hebrews, that we can approach the throne of grace with confidence because our great high priest Jesus has gone before us. And my prayer is that you and I would be people who would move out in this world as forgiven people because of the limitless mercy of Jesus, because of the justice of God who sees us in Christ, who says, you are forgiven. You are forever safe from the penalty of sin that we would be moving out into this world and that we too, through the power of Christ, through the power of the Spirit, would have the limitlessness of mercy flow through us to other people in our life and that we would see the unfolding work of God. That despite the circumstances like Joseph, we would trust. That despite what seems to be the silenceness of God, that we would just trust God. And that God would do a work in and through us. So that's my prayer for you, church. It's my prayer for me. That we would lean into these truths now and forevermore. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for the life of Joseph. And I thank you that Joseph's life in Scripture ultimately points us not to just a group of principles that we can emulate, but it points us to a person in Jesus who is our savior, our king, our friend, our hero, our great high priest, our mediator to God. So Jesus, we thank you for the work that you've done. We thank you that you enable us to stand before God forgiven. May that humble us. May that cause us to move out in the world as grace-filled people. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. We say together, amen.